Welcome to the South Canadian Valley Church of Christ podcast. Please enjoy the following study. Christ is risen. The reason we are here today is because Jesus is alive. The reason we have been singing about and the reason we have been celebrating today is because Jesus is risen from the dead. We declare that, in fact, all those things we read about Jesus were true, that he suffered the hand of Pontius Pilate, that he suffered the most demeaning, dehumanizing, and agonizing death the world has ever known. But God raised him from the dead. What an incredible, incredible claim. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 17, the Apostle Paul says, If Christ be not risen, then your faith is in vain, and you are yet in your sins. Of all the claims that Christianity makes, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is at the very center and the most crucial claim. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Christianity is meaningless. But if Jesus was risen from the dead by the power of God, everything is different. The world is a different place. And that's what we want to study this morning. We want to study why the world is a different place because of Jesus Christ. Because if we consider that statement that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 17, how he says that if Christ is not risen, then we're yet in our sins, and our, it's all a waste of time. If we consider the opposite of that statement, it means that the resurrection of Jesus Christ provides meaning. It means it provides motivation, and it provides significance to the things that we do. That the life that we live is not just a waste of time, but rather is living out the power of the resurrection of Jesus, and really is the center of everything we are, everything we do, and the formative cause of our identity. There are other factors that impact our Christian life that may motivate us and may empower us. The love of God empowers us. The death of Christ empowers us. But the resurrection is very much at the center and I believe serves as a way for us to see everything we do as Christians through that lens. So with that in mind today, I'd like to talk to us about how the resurrection gives a reason. The resurrection gives us a reason for the things that we do and gives us an, a worldview and an outlook to view things through. Specifically, we want to look at three things. We want to look at, number one, how the resurrection gives us a reason for our redemption, to believe that we've been saved. The resurrection gives us a reason to believe in the fact that we have been regenerated. And the resurrection is a reason for reanimation. Now, you may say reanimation, that's a weird word, but it starts with re and ends with shun, so we had to stick that one on there. It's the belief that God one day will raise us from the dead. So before we begin to talk about how the resurrection gives us a reason to believe things, it gives us a reason to have confidence in things, we should ask the question first is that, is the resurrection reasonable? Is it a reasonable thing to believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? Is that something that rational people believe, or is it just some claim that, that narrow-minded people believe? And to be fair to that, if someone came to me and said, did you hear the news? Last year, there was a guy in the Middle East, and he was dead for three days, and he's alive. You know what I would do? I'd say, that's not true. There's no way that could be true. Right? I would discount that, and I would say, there's got to be another reason for these facts. There's got to be another explanation for what you're telling me here. I believe as Christians, we can get so comfortable with the claim that Jesus rose from the dead that we begin to pacify it, that we begin to forget how incredible it is that there was a guy who's dead, and now he is alive. That is an incredible claim. And because we just kind of put it on the back shelf and don't think about how incredible it is that God can raise the dead, it doesn't have power in us because we don't believe that it's an incredible thing. So I'd like to first take a minute to believe, why can we believe the resurrection is reasonable? 
Why should we think of it as something that's, that's rational to think about? You know, one of the claims that skeptics make um, is that the claims of Jesus and the Gospels are just fabricated. Somebody sat down and, and they wrote it out and they made it up. Um, and, and in truth, there's, there's claims of miracles in other religions, of Hindu, of Islam, of Buddhism. And with all respect to those religions, I don't believe those stories are true. I reject them as myths. So why do I believe that Jesus really rose from the dead if I've discounted it um, in all these other areas? I want to look at a few proofs. First is in Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 6. It says, Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women came with them, uh, or with them, came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. And Luke goes on to talk about how these women were the first to see the resurrection of Jesus. So why is the fact that that women were the first to see the resurrected Christ a testimony of the authenticity of this account? Well, in particular, the context that this was written into 2,000 years ago is a highly misogynistic culture. Um, women were thought to be inherently untrustworthy. So if you got to a legal court case, um, you had to have two women for every men that you had testifying. And so if you had a he said, she said, is whatever he said was going to go. And so if you were trying to set down and you were trying to craft a story that everyone was going to believe, you wouldn't put someone that people thought is inherently untrustworthy as the first witnesses of the crucial event. Rather, if you were trying to sit down and write the most believable story possible, you would put someone that in that society everybody thought could be believed. And of course, we, 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 um, we're critical of that opinion now, rightly so, but it was what they thought. What this indicates is that someone didn't sit down and write and think to themselves, how can I write a believable story? Someone sat down and said, how can I write what happened? How can I write what I saw and what I experienced? The next proof that we have to believe why this resurrection accounts are reasonable, Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 through 15, it says, Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. When they had assembled with the elders and consulted them, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them, his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept. And this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. So they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. So notice here, after the soldiers that had been guarding the tomb of Jesus, they, they see his resurrection. They go and tell their bosses, the people who are paying them. They tell the Jews and say, look, this is what happened. And they say, it's okay. If anybody says anything, just say the disciples stole the body. They give a reason to explain why the tomb was empty. And notice, this is something that people continue to say for a very long time. The people continue to say, if you would go into Jerusalem some generation or years later when Matthew's writing, and you said, hey, that Jesus, he was risen from the dead, people would say, oh, no, no, the disciples just stole the body. Now let's think about that set of facts for a second. If they say the disciples stole the body, they're explaining something that they're agreeing with. They're explaining that they believe that the, that the tomb was empty, but there's a reason for it. Let me give you an example. If Aubrey comes home and she says, why is the cookie jar empty? And I say, well, Dustin came over and he ate the cookies, right? Very, probably a reasonable explanation. What am I admitting? I'm admitting that cookie jar is empty. There's no cookies in there because I'm giving you a reason to explain that set of facts. The Jews, the people who are enemies of Jesus, who, have, who don't want this to be true, are agreeing to the fact that there was no body in that tomb on Sunday morning. And you could not go back and find it. 
So how do you explain that set of facts, that the tomb was empty? Well, let's take a moment to consider that explanation that they gave. Well, the disciples stole the body. Okay. Um, if you're going to commit a crime, you've got to have a reason. You've got to have a motive. People don't just, generally speaking, do things out of randomness. They do it for a reason. And a lot of the reason for, for crimes are power, money, or physical pleasure. Does that describe the disciples? No. They didn't get any benefit out of this. In fact, the fact that they declared that Jesus was alive from the dead, after that, their lives were kind of miserable. Their lives were not good. Um, they didn't preach, okay, now give us all your money. Okay, now let us do whatever. Rather, they preached self-sacrifice. They preached a message that caused people to, to deny themselves and not to get a great benefit out of it. So that doesn't explain their motive. Furthermore, it doesn't explain their courage. Remember, these disciples, before Jesus died, they run off afraid. Whenever your, your leader dies in a movement, you know what doesn't happen? Your followers don't come back stronger. You know what they do? They, they run off and they flee. If Jesus was really dead and the disciples stole the body, they know for a fact that Jesus is dead and, 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 and rotting, his body is, but they're still going to come out strong. That doesn't explain it. It doesn't explain the set of facts. So that doesn't explain it. Other people might say the Jews or the Romans stole the body. Well, if the Jews or the Romans stole the body, guess what they're going to do? They're going to show you the body and say, somebody says, the tomb was empty. They'll say, well, the Jews or the Romans stole the body, and we went and saw it, and it doesn't work. Another example, people just went to the wrong tomb. Somebody's going to go to the right tomb eventually. Some people, these begin to get even more fantastic, that Jesus didn't really die. There were mass hallucinations, or that Jesus had a twin. And I, I don't want to be, um, to be unkind, but these get more and more fantastic as you go. At, at some point, we begin to look at the, the impossibility of God, of Jesus being raised from the dead, of, of, of life in a dead body, and we look at the explanation of the facts, and though that claim is incredible, it begins to be the best explanation for those set of facts. Furthermore, if we think about positive evidences for this, we know about historical corroboration. These, islands, these events were in public. It didn't happen on a mountain with two people. It happened in a major metropolitan city. There's early manuscript attestation. You've got the conversion of Paul and the conversion of James as well. So we won't go through all these things. But friends, let me tell you right now, I believe with all my heart that Jesus was dead and God raised him. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead? Amen. You can have confidence in that fact. If you're questioning it, cool. Come ask us. Bring it on. I'm not afraid of the challenges. Because every challenge to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that's been raised, why someone says, well, it couldn't have happened, or here's another explanation, has been found to be refuted. If you have questions, if you have doubt, don't leave today without confidence in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because when we have confidence in that, when we believe that God raises the dead, everything is different. So let's take a moment to look at how some of those things are different. How the resurrection gives us a reason we'll first look at for our redemption and then for our regeneration and then ultimately for our reanimation. So what does it mean that the resurrection gives us a reason to believe that we've been redeemed, that we've had our sins forgiven? Notice Romans chapter 4, verse 25. It says about Christ who was delivered for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Okay, notice what's said here. It talks about how Christ was, was delivered or he died for our sins and he was raised for our justification. Also another way to talk about the forgiveness of sins and standing right in God's sight. A lot of times when we talk about why we're forgiven and why we can have confidence in that, we talk about the, the death of Jesus Christ, and rightly so. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 
that Christ took our sins on the cross and paid that debt. Praise God for that. But notice that's not what this says. It says, well, he was raised up for our trespasses, but there's another level to it. It says he was raised for our justification. So why is it that the fact that Jesus was raised gives us confidence? What does that have to do in our salvation? Well, I believe this is best helped and best understood by by looking at a few biblical themes that you'll find in the Old Testament. So let's take a, a few minutes to do that. Genesis chapter 3, verse number 15. Right after the sin of Adam and Eve, God gives a promise. After Eve and Adam had eaten of the fruit and were tempted by the serpent, God casts a curse upon the serpent, Satan. He says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there's a promise given of someone, some descendant, some seed of the woman who's going to come and who's going to defeat Satan, who's going to ultimately destroy that power that had power over humans, and they are going to suffer in victory. So that that descendant, that human, whoever it is, they're going to win the battle, but it's not going to be without cost. And as you go through the Old Testament, you begin to see this picture fill out, specifically in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 14. Here this is a promise given to the patriarch David. God says to him, When the days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed, your descendant, after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. So in this prophecy, in this prediction, um, of this same person, the seed of a woman who would suffer in victory. We read about someone who would be a seed of David. It's like you've got a big spotlight, and there's a lot of people who could fill that role, and now it zooms in a little bit tighter on who this person could be. They were a seed of David. They were someone who was going to be called the Son of God. Whoever this was, whoever this figure is that's going to deliver people and redeem them from sin is someone who's going to be called God's Son. Okay, And what else is going to do? It talks about he'll suffer for sins. Now here specifically, it talks about how he suffers for his own sins, right? If this this son of God, if this son of David commits iniquity on their own, then God's going to punish them for that. Okay, That's what's going on in this context. But let's compare this with Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53 talks about a servant of the Lord who's going to fulfill the promises of God, who's going to be this what we call Messiah or this promised one. And notice what it says here. It says, he, that's God, shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul into death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. So notice what's mentioned here about this figure. If we read further up in Isaiah chapter 53, it says, they did no sin on their own. They didn't, he didn't do anything evil on his own account. He had no reason to suffer punishment, but notice what happens. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered among the transgressors. Though he was perfect, he's going to suffer for the sins of other people as though they are his own. Notice here we see how he's going to satisfy the Lord in this. That the plan of God that's been commenced from Genesis chapter, Genesis chapter 3 and on full, Galatians chapter 4 talks about in the fullness of times all this comes together. God's huge, big, massive plan to redeem people. He's going to satisfy the Lord and be the one approved by God to do this. And he is going to suffer in place of sinners. He's going to take the sins of the sinners and he's going to bear them as though they were his own. All right, so that's the figure you should have in your mind. The Christ, the Son of God. That's the picture you get from the Old Testament, um, although um, abbreviated slightly. 
So one of the claims, if not the claim of the New Testament, is that Jesus was that guy. Jesus was the guy who, who was the seed of a woman, who suffered in victory, who bore the sins of people. But how do we know they got it right? How do we know that the early disciples that were writing were right about this? There are other people in history who claim to be the Messiah. There are other people in, in world history and in Jewish history who said, hey, that person that God set up that's going to be the special person that redeems everybody, they said, I'm that guy. They, they raised up their hand and said that, besides Jesus. So why does Jesus stand apart? Well, as we look at this vision here of all the things that are in here about how he's the seed of a woman and how he's the son of God, this is all one package. And you get all of these things together. And notice what Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says. It says, Jesus Christ our Lord, who is born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. How do we know that the disciples are right? How do we know that Jesus really was the guy? How do we know that Jesus did suffer and God accepted the sacrifice? It's because God raised him from the dead. And we can have confidence and no doubt that Jesus did not fail, that Jesus accomplished the purposes of God, and there is nothing lacking in our salvation. Why? Because God raised Jesus from the dead. And so why does that matter? Why does it matter that we can have confidence? Why does this give us a reason to believe in the fact that we've been redeemed? Have you ever looked at your sins before? You've looked at them and you're just overwhelmed by their magnitude? Have you ever looked in shame at the things you've done and thought to yourself, there's no way God could ever forgive me. There's no way that I could be right in the sight of God because of the things that I have done. Perhaps some of you have experienced that. That how could I be clean when I've done things that I'm so ashamed of? Friends, I'm here to tell you today, I've done things that if you knew about, most of you would not want to be friends with me. But we can have confidence in our salvation, in the fact that God has redeemed us because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so we no longer have to look in shame at the things that we have done. We look at that and we hate that we've done that. We despise that. We may be frustrated. We may be ashamed, but it's not a shame that's overwhelming. It's not a shame that says, I can't get past this because we believe if God can raise the dead, then God can forgive sins. And we can have confidence in that and we can live every day without the shadow of guilt for things that God has already freed us from. And so in Romans chapter 6, we read, Therefore we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we've been united in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed and done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Here in this passage, we read about the power of what we experience in baptism. How whenever we go into that water, we kill that old person. That in the sight of God, that sinner, that person who is imperfect, that person who fails again and again, that person who just can't get it right is dead. And in the sight of God, we stand clean. And in baptism, we don't have to worry anymore about the previous things that we've done. We leave those in the water with us and we emerge as a new person. And we believe that because God raises the dead. And we don't have to live anymore with our sins following behind us because Jesus has paid for them. 
and his resurrection demonstrates that to us. So as we think about the belief that God can put life back in a dead body and he can forgive us, and we should have that same confidence in the fact that we have been redeemed. However, sometimes the question isn't a concern of a judicial question of, are, are we thumbs up or are we thumbs down? Are we saved or are we not saved? Sometimes if you're like me, you've looked at the things that you've done even after you've named your Lord in baptism, and you just feel overwhelmed. You just feel like this, not just the sins that you did before you came to, faith, came to faith in Christ overwhelm you, but the sins you continue to do, that you just cannot break loose of them, our failures and our hang-ups and our addictions and all that stuff that we just can't seem to cast off. What does the resurrection have to say about why we can believe that we can move past these things? Romans chapter 6, verses 8-12 through 12 says, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that also we shall live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, that you should obey its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourself to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness. So there's this call that once we've, once we've been baptized, once we've put on Christ and we've had our sins forgiven and we're walking in newness of life, there's a call to walk in a new life and to change. But many of us, as we, even then, we get overwhelmed by sin once again. Notice here, I think there's, there's two facts that I think are, are, are really important here. First is if we've died with Christ, if we've experienced baptism, this is our reality. We need to live better. Okay, that's what God has called us to. God has called us to leave those sins behind us. Not just the guilt, but those actions to no longer commit them. But I want to notice what he says there in the middle. He says, remember, Jesus died and he's not dying anymore. Jesus died once. He wasn't resuscitated. He didn't just come back for a few hours and they kept him alive. Jesus was alive and he's going to live forever. Now, likewise, in the middle there, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. How do you think about yourself? A lot of times the battlefield of spirituality is a three-inch surface and it's the space between your ears. What you think about and how you think about it and how you view yourself in light of what Christ has done or not in light of Christ has done is going to have serious impacts on how you act. Here the first thing Paul says along with leaving those sins is you are dead to sin. You have moved past that by the grace of God. And the resurrection testifies to that fact. That if God can put life back in a dead body, you can have new life and you can move out of it. Notice here what it says in, uh, in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. It talks about the sin we are in. It says, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Lord, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Though we look at this, we need to have confidence because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that in our baptism, God has done a work. There's an element, there's a, there's a crucial element that can't be avoided in the fact that we choose to live every day for Christ. 
But when we are baptized, the power of God is unleashed in our lives in a way that we maybe not be able to put our finger on, but you can see it. You can see the fruits of the Spirit of God being worked out. And so we need to have confidence in that fact. We need to believe that we have been washed and that we have been regenerated, that God has given us a new nature in some sense when we obey the gospel. The power of the resurrection allows us to have power over the sin of our lives so that we're no longer slave to sin, we're no longer subject to its power, we're no longer under its sway. And I want to note the two components to this that we've noticed here. We've noticed how we reckon ourselves indeed dead to sin. There's an action we take about how we change our minds and change our mindset, but we also believe in the power of God to help us. Notice Philippians chapter 2. It says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. There's something here about the effort we give. There's something about how we need to work, how we need to finish things, how we have we need to get better as Christians. But why? Because it's God who's at work in us. And so these two components come together and how God chooses to work in our lives is to continue to bless us and to motivate that action. And we continue to grow and we continue to grow. We can't just sit back and say that God will handle it without my effort. But rather because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have confidence that he will supply according to our need. That he will keep his promises and that we can truly be changed. Romans chapter 8, verse 11 says, But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Think about power for a second. When I think about things that are powerful, I might think of a large piece of equipment, construction equipment. I might think about, you've seen huge tractors or constructions or bulldozers, massive power and ability to exert influence. I might think about an explosive. I've got some friends that really like to shoot Tannerite a little bit too much um, and kind of worries me sometimes, but, but they do all right. I think about an atomic bomb and all the power and ability to affect change. But all that man can do has never been able to put enough power, time, energy, resources, money, anything to be able to put life in a body that was dead. And that's the power that we, each and every one of us as Christians, have living in us and operating in us. The same spirit that was the operative means whereby God raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that we have living in us. And so friends, as we look to our failures and we look to our addictions, as we've mentioned, as we look to the things that hang us up and we think will always be in the way, we see the power of God. Instead of telling ourselves, well, I guess I'll always be this way, we tell to ourselves that if God can raise the dead, then he can change me. We put our total faith and our total trust in that because, friends, if you've been here very long, you know there's a lot of people who've seen that, a lot of people who've experienced that, and we can testify to that fact. Finally, as we think about this, the resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us a belief in the fact that we'll be reanimated. One day. Notice the claim in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 to 52. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. One of the promises of Christianity is that because Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father, many people have died. 
Perhaps maybe one day each of us will die. But we will be raised with a new body. The promise of Christianity is that death is not the end. In fact, if we die before Christ returns, we have this promise that we will be reanimated. But how could that happen? Once again, as we've noticed, no matter how hard humans have tried, the best we're able to do is prolong our lives or delay death. We're not able to really and truly overcome death. Notice what's said in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 to 15. It says, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. We read that Jesus experienced life as a human like humans do in a flesh, of flesh and blood. And of all the purposes why Christ chose to go through that and to experience that, the one noted here is so that Christ might destroy the devil, the one who has the power of death, so that humans are no longer subject to it. See, here's the thing. Throughout ages, people have been able to put their faith in God and to trust in him. They were able to accomplish great things as you read the Old Testament. But at the end of the day, Satan stood there at the grave and said, you're still going to die. You're still going to die. It's going to end, and it's all going to be over. That was the power that Satan had, and he wielded it with impunity. The fear that people would die often caused and causes people to do things that they wouldn't normally do. And Satan, using that as one of his weapons, was able to keep humanity captive. But Christ took the full force, the, in, the entire extent, and the whole weight of all that the armies and arsenals of hell could throw at him, and he triumphed over them, laying their shame bare for all to see, as Colossians chapter 2.15 tells us. Jesus took the worst that death had to offer. Jesus went through the hardest thing that any human could do. Satan took his best punch at Jesus, and Jesus came back and said, Is that all you've got? And so we don't have to fear because we have someone who has gone before. Why does this matter? Because it once again demonstrates the power of our God. It demonstrates why in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 6, it says, We can boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will have no fear. What can man do to me? Brother Jordan Linslow talked last Wednesday night a little bit about the fear of man, about placing our trust in man and not our trust in God and what happens in that area. Friends, the Lord is our helper. And whatever man can do to us, they may kill the body, but they cannot take the soul. They may hurt us, they may afflict us, but they cannot take away our eternal reward because God has promised to raise us up at the last day. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ says he can do it. And we can have full confidence in that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 53 to 57 says, For the corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We can go from being people who are scared to death of death, who hide in a corner, afraid of what will happen to us after we die, to people who can mock death, 
to people who can look death in the face and say, you can't hurt me because my God raises the dead. You have no power over me because Jesus is more power is more powerful and he can overcome. And so we have no fear. We have great boldness. We don't have to worry about at the end of life what's going to happen to us. We can simply put our faith and our trust in the promises of God to deliver us. And so as we think about why the resurrection is the reason here for, for reanimation, we, we read that we need to be, uh, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. There are so many times it feels like everything we do is a waste of time. But what this says is that if we labor in the Lord, if we labor in doing what God tells us to do, in being more like him, in sharing the gospel with other people, it will never be in vain. We may not see the fruit and reap what we would like to have today. We may not have instant and immediate gratification, but one day we will reap. Guess what? Jesus was in the grave for three days. He had to wait for the reward and the vindication of the Father. And similarly, we wait with patience and the same trust that Jesus did, that he will raise us from the dead. So I don't know where you're at today. I don't know where you're at as it pertains to following Jesus Christ. Maybe you need to be baptized this morning. Maybe you need to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Maybe you need to do this because, not of what other people think, but you have looked into it and you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord of all because of his resurrection from the dead. And that you can have faith and trust in baptism to have your sins forgiven and no longer stand guilty. But maybe you've done that in genuine faith. Maybe you are overcome by your sins. Maybe you are struggling with sin. Maybe you feel up to your head in failure. Maybe you look at the things you've done and you wonder about your forgiveness. Friends, look to the empty tomb. Look to the empty tomb. If you're worried about what man could do to you, look to the empty tomb. Because the testimony of our God is that Jesus is alive. And if there's anything that motivates us and does more for us than that, I, I don't know what it is. Because the resurrection is the reason we believe. It empowers us to believe. It means we have no doubt because we serve the God who raises the dead. So if you need any assistance this morning, we're going to sing a song. We want to help you. Because... We can praise our God, a God who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If you need the name of your Lord in baptism this morning, please let us help you. If you need prayers, we want to help you because we serve a God who is unstoppable. And we long to help you to know him this morning. In any situation, come, please stand as together we praise our God. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. For further information about our church, please go to normanchurch.com, normanchurch.com, normanchurch.com.